Well, if you have not had a chance to uh, greet Trevor and Maria Hogue, they are here today, and we're very happy that they made it safely from Kansas City. They rolled into Michigan on Friday uh, about midday, and um, we were able to unload them fairly quickly and uh, get them into their apartment, and so uh, we're delighted to have them with us uh, this morning for the first time. And uh, Maria's mom is here, Therese, uh, visiting, helping them get everything set up as well. So after the service, if you have opportunity, I would definitely encourage you to greet them, welcome them. And uh, we're just very thankful to the Lord uh, for his providence and sovereignty in orchestrating the relationship with them and bringing that about and for them being willing to come to Michigan and join us in ministry here. And we're excited for what the Lord has for us uh, in the coming months and the coming years as well. Well, you can open your Bible this morning to Matthew chapter 1. That's where we'll be. There's a tendency for us, maybe this is for you, to think of a story as something that is mainly for a child. Uh, We tend to teach kids Bible stories, right? Um, We tend to read kids books at night, stories. Uh, And kids do love stories. Our uh, four kids do. They love it when Bethany or I will sit down and read a book to them. Bethany's reading a book right now to our younger two kids, and they absolutely delight in it every night before bed, or almost every night. Uh, They want to hear what's coming next. They love the characters. They love the flow of the story. Um, And it it is important uh, for those of you that have kids to read your children the right type of stories Um, Because as they grow, those stories, the ones that they hear from a young age, will shape them and they will form them into certain kinds of people. But stories are not just for kids, and the importance of, of a story is not just for a child. And the importance of a story, the type of story that you expose yourself to, is not something that is only true for a young kid. They're equally important for adults. You do not reach a certain age, whether it's 18 or 21 or 30 or whatever, you don't reach an age where you sort of leave stories behind and you move on to something else more important. For you as an adult, no matter what age you are, stories still shape your character. They shape how you view the world around you, how you think about yourself, and how you view other people. And I would say for each person sitting here today, you are living your life. You are making decisions out of a belief concerning the story that you you think you inhabit. One author put it like this, and I love this. We make sense of our reality by interpreting it and retelling it as a story. We frame our lives as a narrative, as a movement, as a story. And every good story, even bad stories, have a setting. They have characters. There are certain elements that make up a story. You have a setting, you have characters, but you can't tell a story, and it doesn't qualify as one without some sort of movement, right? There has to be a progression in the events that happen to the characters. 
Every story is basically structured the same way. There is a beginning, and then there's a conflict that happens. There's some sort of tension in the story. There's a problem that needs to be solved. And then there's a series of events that unfold that lead to the resolution of the conflict and the climax of the story. And then after that, maybe there's more events that lead you to the end of that particular story, but they're all structured the same way. And they're all structured the same way because they're all rooted in God's grand narrative that he is working in creation. Now, right now, we're obviously in the middle of December, and this is a Christmas series. So we're all thinking about the Christmas story. And it's funny because we we frame it that way, right? The Christmas story. And normally what we mean when we say that is a reading out of Luke chapter 2. That's the Christmas story. But this holiday season, over the next few weeks, as you ponder the Christmas story and as you read it and think about it, maybe you're doing some Advent reading on your own, it's important that you see this one snapshot, this story in Matthew 1 and Luke 2, the Christmas story, as part of a much, much bigger narrative that is being worked out. When I talk about a story having movement to it, there's movement in the Bible. There's a beginning, there's conflict, there's a series of events that lead up to the the resolution of the conflict, and there's a climax in the end of the story. There's movement from creation to consummation. And the Christmas story, the birth of Christ, comes right in the middle of this narrative. It fits in the spot that it needs to fit into, and it is the realization of all that has come before it. It's not disconnected. It's not sort of a, oh, how did this end up here? When you have the whole Bible, this fits, and it comes as the resolution of everything that has happened before. And I would say you can't really grasp the significance of the Christmas story this year unless you connect it to the Old Testament, unless you see what has come before and what has led up to these events. Now, the Gospel writers, particularly Matthew and Luke, make this quite clear. So if you're open to Matthew 1, I want to show you how Matthew begins his gospel and leads us up to our text for this morning. Look at verse 1, how Matthew opens his, his account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so he explains, you're going to read a genealogy of this person, this individual, Jesus Christ, and then he lists two main characters from the Old Testament. He wants you immediately to connect this person, Jesus the Christ, to these two Old Testament characters, David and Abraham. Both are crucial in God moving his plan of redemption forward. Why? Because both of them had significant covenants made with them in the Old Testament. The Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. And those covenants established a promise from God that his rule and reign, his kingdom, would return to earth. It would once again be established. Now look down at Matthew 1 and verse 17, the end of this genealogy. So all the generations from Abraham to David 
were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation, I'm sorry, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And so he adds another key element in the Old Testament story here, the exile that they experienced, that the Jews experienced to Babylon. And so the whole genealogy has been summarized with these three main pieces, Abraham, David, and the exile. God has established his covenant with his people through Abraham and David, and his people have continually been unfaithful, which resulted in the exile to Babylon. There's the Old Testament story in a nutshell. Matthew views the entire Old Testament narrative, all of God's promises, all of his purposes, all of Israel's unfaithfulness in the Old Testament, all of that points to and finds its climax and resolution in the birth and the life and the ministry of the Christ, the Lord Jesus. And it's because of that, because of that massive connection between the Old Testament and Jesus Christ that we're going to study these first few events in the life of Christ over the next couple of weeks. And I want to show you intentionally and specifically how these events are connected to the Old Testament. So today we're going to look at Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25. This is a very short account of the birth of Christ. It's stated quite simply. But this account is just packed full of connections to the Old Testament and of important insights into the birth of Christ. And so as we study this today, here's what we're going to see. Three defining features of Christ's birth, and then there's a little bit more that that I didn't put on the screen because it would have taken up too much room. (laughs) Three defining features of the birth of Christ that bring us to trust God's purposes. I mean, that's the payoff here. That's what we're aiming for as we study this text today. So three defining features of the birth of Christ that bring us to trust God's plan and his purposes. And you can see the first one on the screen there. This is a supernatural birth, verses 18 to 20. Look with me at the beginning of verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now, it's not apparent in English, unfortunately, in some ways, but the the word that's translated birth here is the same root word as you find in in Matthew chapter 1, where it says genealogy. And so it's the same root of that word. And so this is connecting you back to the beginning of the book in chapter 1 and verse 1, and really connecting you to the whole genealogy. I also want you to look at verse 16 of chapter 1 to see another connection to the birth of Christ. Beginning explanation here. Verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, and, and look how Joseph is described here. The husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And so if you're reading this genealogy, every section of this is phrased the same way until you get to this. And now when you read this, you're going, this is different. Why the emphasis on Joseph being Mary's husband and why the emphasis on Jesus being born of Mary? And of course, then you have his name there, 
or his designation as the Messiah, the Christ. And so this is different. And now when you get to verse 18, it's like Matthew is picking up verse 16 and he's saying, okay, now I'm going to explain to you why this birth is so different. Look at the rest of verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. You're probably familiar with uh, the practices of the marriage practices at this time, but it would have been very common for a young woman to be betrothed to a man or engaged, we would say, for several years. She could have been quite young, possibly 12 or 13, when she was initially promised to this man. And they were not yet living together. They had not consummated their marriage. But in this state of engagement, being betrothed, they were considered married. They were pledged to one another. It was official according to the law. And in this verse, we get a little bit of editorial behind the scenes look at what is happening. And we find out that Mary is pregnant before their come together before they've consummated their marriage, and this pregnancy is by a supernatural work. This is from the Holy Spirit. And so that's a behind-the-scenes look, and now, in verse 19, Matthew pivots to Joseph. And Joseph finds out about this, verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And so he finds out that she is pregnant. And it says here that he's a just man or a righteous man. Now, this doesn't mean that Joseph is sinless. doesn't mean he's never done anything wrong. But what this does indicate to us is that he's a man of character. He's a good man. And he has pursued keeping the Old Testament law. He's done what he has needed to do according to the law. And he's attempted to keep it. And so when he finds out that she's pregnant, he pursues legal divorce because he assumes that she's been unfaithful, and rightfully so, right? And so he wants to do this because he's a man of character in a quiet way. He's a good man. He doesn't want to expose her to public scorn and public shame as much as possible. And so this, is, this seems to be a very reasonable response from a good man until he gets a little bit more information. Look at verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so this is a messenger from God that appears to him, and I want you to notice what he calls Joseph here, son of David. This takes us back to that genealogy. Once again, Matthew wants us to understand that there's a connection to the Old Testament and a connection to the Davidic line, the Davidic covenant, the promises that God made through David. This reminds us of Jesus' place in the story of the Old Testament. And the angel here assures Joseph that Mary is experiencing something quite unique, unprecedented. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's be clear here, okay? All right, this passage 
is why we believe in the virgin birth. And we do believe in the virgin birth. That is a key element in our faith. We don't need any other explanation of the virgin birth other than what Matthew says here. Now, why is it so important for us to believe in the virgin birth? What does that communicate to us? Well, it communicates that God, in the second person of the Trinity, has become man. God has pursued mankind. God has initiated. He has done this work. This is something supernatural that is happening by God's decree and through the work of the Holy Spirit. The pre-existent God of the universe has united to himself a human nature and has become 100% God and 100% man. One theologian phrased it like this. But by means of Mary's virginal conception, God the Son, without ceasing to be what he is, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the eternal Son and Word of God, took into union with his divine nature in the one divine person of the Son, our human nature, and so came to be with us as Emmanuel. Our faith is dependent on this reality, that he is both God and both man. Therefore, he is able to save us as fallen human beings. And it's because of that reality that we get to our second feature here. It's a saving birth. It's not only a supernatural birth, but because it's supernatural, supernatural conception and birth, it is a saving birth. Verse 21, the the angel continues here to instruct Joseph in his dream. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, Joseph was very specifically to name this child Jesus. Now, Jesus, if you're not familiar with this, Jesus is the Greek form of, the Greek way of saying the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua. And this means Yahweh saves. And so that's what his name means. That's why he's given this. That's what the angel points out at the end of verse 21. He shall save his or he will save his people from their sins. Now that, that way of thinking about Jesus, that he'll save his people from their sins. We're New Testament believers, and so that's very normal for us to think in those terms, isn't it? I mean, you see this sort of designation of Jesus and this connected to his name throughout the New Testament. One place in particular is Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's through him. He's the one that brings salvation. But the angel is not drawing this phrase here from Acts 4.12. He's drawing it from the Old Testament. And he's drawing it specifically from Psalm 130. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Psalms, Psalm 130 is part of the Psalms of Ascent. There's a whole list of psalms from 120 to 134 that are packaged together, and these are the psalms of ascent. 
And these would have been psalms that were sung, recited by the Israelites as they made their way up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord in the temple. Maybe they're going to Passover, and they're making their way up to Jerusalem, and they're singing the psalms of ascent. And so these are not songs that would have been sung by the Israelites enslaved in Egypt. They're not speaking here in these psalms about their freedom from Egypt and their deliverance from slavery. They're talking here in Psalm 130 about their eschatological hope of deliverance from their sins. They recognize that something needs to happen in their lives to be delivered from their ultimate enemy, which is sin. And that's exactly why the angel communicates here by alluding to Psalm 130 when he talks about the purpose of Jesus' coming. Let me, let me read this psalm to you. And the, psalm that he's, or the verse he's alluding to is the last one, verse 8. This is a song of a sense. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And then here's verse 8. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And this is the background to what this angel communicates to Joseph here. Now it is interesting that when the angel communicates this, he doesn't say he'll save Israel which is what it says here in verse 8. What does he say? He says he'll save his people. And the Old Testament prophets and the Psalms as well are filled with the expectation that God's coming salvation will extend out from the Jews and will include people from every tongue and every tribe and every race. His salvation will go to the corners of the earth. This is the eschatological hope and the, the angels communicating to Joseph what they hoped for there it's coming. It's coming through this child that will be born to your young wife. They will be included. All of these people will be included in this hope of salvation and deliverance from their sins. And that brings us to our third defining feature. Supernatural birth is a saving birth. And then here, I get to the heart of this passage it settles the Old Testament hope of God's presence. Now, the angel has stopped talking at the end of verse 21, I think, and now we get Matthew's editorial comments here, right? So he's sort of filling us in and explaining what is happening and how, how we should think about this in light of the Old Testament. Look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. All right, I want you to notice that word fulfill because this is the word of the morning, right? It's the word of the series. We've named this series fulfilled for a particular reason. 
If you go home this afternoon and you read the first few chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, you will find that word fulfilled used over and over and over again. And in the first few chapters of Matthew, Matthew 1 to 4, even when you don't see that word used, Matthew is quoting Old Testament passages. I mean, the whole, the whole first four chapters are filled with quotations and allusions to the Old Testament. And Matthew is trying to get the reader, his reader, to see the connections between the life of Christ and the Old Testament. And he wants you, even more than just saying, okay, it's talked about in the Old Testament, he wants you to see the connections between Jesus and Israel. And he wants you to see, we'll talk about this in coming weeks, how Israel failed, and where they failed, Jesus succeeds and fulfills all righteousness. Now, this word fulfilled, we got to talk about this here, all right? So bear with me for a bit, but it's really important that you understand what Matthew is getting at when he uses this word, particularly here. There's a couple of different ways that we, we could think about his use of this word, right? Probably what we're all thinking when we first read this is that Matthew is describing a predictive prophecy, all right? Now, what do I mean by that? We typically think what Matthew's doing is he's saying, okay, there was something promised in the Old Testament. A prediction was made of a specific event in the New Testament, and this story, this event in the New Testament is accomplishing or realizing what was predicted in the Old Testament. So Matthew, we would tend to read this to say, is, is, is instructing us that what's happening in the life of Jesus right now is accomplishing or fulfilling in that way of reading it, this prediction in the Old Testament. There's sort of a one-for-one one prediction and then realization of that prediction. Now, he does do this, the sort of predictive prophecy. I want to show you where he does this. Matthew 2, verses 5 and 6. Look there with me. This is where the wise men come, and they, they roll up to Herod, and they're telling him about what's happening. And look what, look what they say in verses 4 and 5. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then he, he quotes the Old Testament here. This is a predictive prophecy. This is saying this was promised, now it's happening. I don't think that's what Matthew's doing in Matthew 1, 22 and 23. I don't think that's how he's using the word fulfill here. In fact, you don't see that word fulfill in the prophecy about Bethlehem. And I think that might be intentional by Matthew. So how do I think he's using this? All right, I think he's using it in a typological way. What, is that? what does that mean? What are we talking about here? Now, you're familiar with typology. You know this, right? There are other examples of types that you're familiar with. The Passover lamb is a type of the Lord Jesus. There's, there's correspondence there. There's a similarity in what happens to the Passover lamb and what it accomplishes and what happens to the Lord Jesus and what he accomplishes, right? Moses is a type of Christ. There's similarity 
in the events of their lives and in, in what happens to them and what they accomplish, right? So you're very familiar with typology. You know this works in the Bible. Now, what makes something a type? Well, there's two things that have to take place here. There has to be a similar pattern. We'll call this historical correspondence, right? So there has to be something that happens here that looks very similar to what happens in the New Testament. It's the same pattern of events, same experiences, and there's escalation. And so you go from something lesser to something greater in the New Testament. And I think you have both of those happening here correspondence and escalation. And so I think we need to read this as a type. And so Matthew uses this word fulfill here to mean he's drawing a type between Jesus and something that takes place in the Old Testament. And so you're going, okay, well, what takes place in the Old Testament here? Where is this type happening in the Old Testament? That's in verse 23. Look there, he quotes a prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The passage quoted here is Isaiah 7. So I want you to turn in your Bibles back to Isaiah 7. All right? You got to follow with me in Isaiah 7. We need to look at the context here if we're going to understand how this is being used. And it's important that we understand how it's being used. Now, the quote in Matthew is from Isaiah 7:14, but let's start in verses 1 and 2. I want to show you the context of this quote here. So, at this point, remember, in your study of the Old Testament, the kingdom of Israel is divided. There's a northern kingdom and there's a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel. It's ten tribes. The southern kingdom is called Judah. Jerusalem is in Judah. David's line is continuing here through the kings of Judah. Jerusalem is there, and there's two tribes. All right? Let's start in verses 1 and 2 with that background. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. So Ahaz is the king of the southern kingdom. Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel. All right, so the king of Syria and the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, are together. They came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. So these two guys, the northern kingdom and his buddy from Syria, are trying to unseat Ahaz, who's the king in the southern kingdom. Look at the rest of verse 1 here. But they could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, which is another way of saying Israel, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. We experienced that yesterday, didn't we? <laughs> and there's a very vivid picture of what happened to these guys. They're terrified. They're going back and forth. Because these two kings are coming on Judah and Jerusalem, and they're planning to take Ahaz and the line of David out. They're planning to destroy them, and that terrifies Ahaz and his people. And so what does God do in response to this? He sends the prophet Isaiah to speak with Ahaz. Look at verse 3. When the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son. I'm probably not saying that right, but that's okay. 
at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. So he sends Isaiah with his son to meet with Ahaz, and look what he's going to tell him, verses 4 through 6 here. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. The Lord's talking about Syria, the king of Syria, and the king of Israel here. At the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remalia. Why? Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabiel as king in the midst of it. Right? So their plan is to unseat Ahaz, to obliterate the Davidic line, and to put their own king up there. So what does God say he's going to do? Look at verses 7 through 9. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. What won't stand? Their plans. And it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. At the head of Ephraim is Samaria, at the head of Samaria is the son of Remalia. If you, this is to Ahaz, are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. What's God's word? Look, I'm going to take them out. What's your response need to be, Ahaz? Trust me. Trust me. I am going to destroy them. You don't need to worry about them. They're just two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Don't, don't shake like the, the tree in the wind. And then look what God says in verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz doesn't want to do this. Verse, verse 12, but Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? So it's like God's a little frustrated with Ahaz here. I told you to ask a sign of me, something to prove that I'm going to come through on these promises. He doesn't want to do it. And so God decides to give him a sign that he's going to be faithful and he's going to come through on his promises. And look what sign he chooses, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this is our verse from Matthew 1. And here is the promise of a sign to Ahaz that God will be faithful to him and deliver him from these two kings. Now, let's talk about this sign a little bit here, all right? The word translated here could mean virgin, and it could mean that this woman is currently a virgin, is not married, but she will be soon, or you could translate this as young woman. I don't think that translation matters very much to our belief in the virgin birth, because as we saw in Matthew 1, the virgin birth is clearly taught in Matthew chapter 1. And I don't think it matters a lot because this is not predicting the birth of Jesus. This is not talking about the birth of Jesus here in a predictive prophecy sort of way. How we normally think of it. This is describing a child who would be born in Isaiah's day that would be a sign to Ahaz. How do I know that? Look at verses 15 and 16. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good for 
Before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So what's he saying? Look, there's going to be a child that's going to be born, and before he is old enough to choose evil or choose good, these two kings, their land is going to be deserted. That is something that's going to happen in the lifetime of Ahaz. And it's something that's going to happen in the lifetime of Isaiah. And it does appear from this text that Isaiah's son may be the one who fulfills this. Look at chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalahash Baz, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. And so he's saying God's going to keep his promise to destroy Syria and the northern kingdom by bringing in another power, Assyria. Look at verses 5 and 8, 5 through 8. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shaloah that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remalia. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. Again, talking to this child, O Emmanuel, this child that would be born during this time. Now, the most important thing in all of this for Ahaz, for Isaiah, and for the people of Israel is that God is promising this child will be a sign that will prove his faithfulness to his people, and it will prove that he is with his people. That's exactly what the Lord says in verses 9 and 10. Look here. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. All right, that's a long explanation here. Let's talk about the whole context of what is happening here, and it's important that you get this so that we can jump to the New Testament. What's the situation in Isaiah 7 and 8? The line of David is threatened by two foreign kings, and God's promise to his people is in jeopardy. The Davidic king who's on the throne, Ahaz, is not a godly man. He's not a faithful ruler. The people are suffering. They're terrified. God seems absent. Yet, God promises to give a sign, and the birth of this sign, of this child, will indicate God's presence with his people. The child is born, apparently, to Isaiah and his wife, and God comes through on his promise to destroy these other nations and confirms his presence with his people. The people simply need to trust God's sovereign care and watch him work. What's the situation in Matthew 1? The line of David is no longer even on the throne at all. It hasn't been for a long time. Rome now rules over the people of Israel. And the king, the most direct ruler in Israel, is not even a Jew. So much for the line of David. The people are suffering, they're doubting, and they're doubting whether God will come through on his promises. God seems distant and absent. 
He hasn't spoken in 400 years to them. Yet, God promises to give a sign, the birth of a child. But this will be no ordinary child, like the one that was born in Isaiah's day. This child will be born of a virgin through the power of God and the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And the birth of this child won't just prove that God is with His people. He will actually be God coming to dwell with His people. And His ultimate goal won't be political deliverance. It will be spiritual deliverance from their biggest problem. Not Rome. Their sins. And God brings this to pass. Look at Back in Matthew 1, verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So what do we learn from this? A lot of explanation. Well, the first thing we learn is this isn't just a predictive prophecy about the birth of Jesus. This teaches us more than just that God can fulfill predictions. He does, and He can do that. And He does it over and over again. But this teaches us about the nature of Christ's birth and His ministry and His work. We get this rich and this full picture of what His birth will mean because of this connection to the Old Testament. The New Testament is fulfilling all of these expectations in the Old Testament. They're escalating and reaching their zenith and their climax and the pinnacle of what God is doing. It's like what he did here, but it's so much more and so much better. And so the, the connections between the New Testament and the Old Testament provide the background for us to get a rich and a full sense of the life and ministry of Jesus. The birth of Jesus is God showing up to his people in a major way. And he shows up to save them from their sins and to deliver them. And he shows up when he seems the most distant and the most absent. And when all the circumstances would say God has not been faithful to his promise. He delivers, and He comes, and He shows up. So what's the response for you and I to this? The primary response, I think, to seeing these connections and interpreting this passage this way is worshipful trust. Look, God is an author who has told a story and is providentially overseeing all of this setting in place these circumstances here that will be fulfilled here and that we can draw connections with. God is overseeing all of human history down to the details in order to tell His story and accomplish His purposes. And the beauty of that for you and I is that we fit within this story. The story has not been completed yet. It has not been fully told. And the same God who does this sort of work is still working in you and in me and in us right now. And He's accomplishing His good purposes according to His sovereign will and for His glory and for our good. 
And I think that's what we see here in the birth of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. It's beautiful, Lord. It's amazing how you have set all of this up, how you have orchestrated this. What a gift of grace this is to us, that you show up in times where you seem the most distant and the most absent. You show up to deliver and to save, to forgive and redeem your people. We're so thankful for this, Lord. We're thankful for what you have done. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that you have come, that you humbled yourself and took the form of a servant and came in the likeness of men in order to redeem men from our fallen condition. And we're the recipients of that today. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.